0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Double Century on the 99.94 Podcast Network. Two former Test cricketers are meeting over the future of the game in each one of their countries. It's around the year 1980. Things are getting a little bit desperate for both of them. One of them is Doug Insull, who played seven times for England and is now the chair of the TCCB, which, if you don't know, is the original name for the ECB. The other is Dr. Aaron Bakker. In his childhood, he used to be part of a local group of boys that would play cricket and football after school. Bakker was their captain. His friend Arnold's father, a man called Mr. Perkins, called the gang Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves. That was how Aaron Bakker became known as Ali. In fact, outside of me just now, no one has really called him Aaron Bakker for a long time. Dr. Ali Baka had been the last South African captain. You could also, I suppose, in the 1980s have called him their current test captain, because they'd not played any test cricket since their last match, and that had been over a decade ago. He wanted South Africa to play again, but no one wanted to play against them. They had been shunned by most sporting bodies around the world since 1970, certainly with cricket after the Basil Dolavira affair. And it wasn't just cricket, of course. The Indian team had declined to travel to South Africa to play the 1974 Davis Cup final. They chose a walkover instead. The New Zealand rugby team toured South Africa in early 1976, and there were certainly other times that the South Africans played sport as well. It wasn't a complete black banning, but they certainly didn't play as much as they had before. The remaining sporting ties really went away after the Glen Eagles Agreement of 1977. India, Pakistan, and the West Indies weren't going to relent when it came to cricket. And that was because South Africa didn't play them before, of course, so there was no love lost between them. And cricket was falling apart in South Africa. The stars were still there, as fantastic as ever, but participation levels were going down. At this point, Dr. Baka was a senior administrator of the South African Cricket Union, He understood that unless international stars came to South Africa, the public won't be as interested, and he thought that in a generation or two, cricket may die. So he requests InSoul for England support, and InSoul tells him bluntly, until apartheid goes, you can forget about getting back into world cricket. England cannot support you. If we did, it would be the end of English cricket. The black nations would not play us again. The problem for Bucca was that apartheid was not going away, and he knew that. And so he realized at this point that no board would ever send a side to South Africa. In fact, the closest that South Africa got to getting back into mainstream cricket was in the second Women's World Cup tournament was actually planned to be there. But even that did not happen. So in the end, the only way out for South African cricket is to lure international crickets there using the one thing that South Africa had in abundance, money. This season is about rich people who decided that they would make cricket better. More about them, or sometimes both. Maybe they wanted to profit from it or just insert themselves into an 11 they had no right to be in. But they had the money, and cricket was purchased by them for their own wants and needs. Welcome to the people who bought cricket. This episode is about Dr. Ali Bakr, a test captain who brought international cricket to South Africa when no one wanted to do it. He did it by luring them in with more money than they would have made for playing cricket for any of their countries. This era of South Africa was certainly an abnormal society created by legalized apartheid, especially since the National Party assumed complete power in 1948. This impacted cricket. South Africa was only playing the white nations, England, Australia, and New Zealand. When foreign teams toured, the non-whites were restricted to a small section of the gallery. This was called the cage. From there, they often toured the touring team and not the actual South Africans. White and non-white cricketers were not allowed to play cricket against each other. When I asked several South African cricketers how good Basil de La was, they had to admit that they hadn't actually seen him play when he was young because they never watched players who weren't white. There were actually several cricket boards in the country for a long time, but the ICC recognised only the all-white version. The South South African Cricket Board of Control represented more people, but they were not white, so they did not count. We know there are great stories of Crom Hendricks, and Frank Roro, Eric Peterson, Taleb Sally Cess Abrahams, Tiny Abed, Ghulam Abed, Dennis Foreman, Eric Majola, Kaya Majola, and so many more. And if you don't know some of the names on that list, it's only because the South African government never wanted us to find out about them, and the ICC never did anything about it. But those guys could play. We have enough stories about them, and we also know what happened with Basil Dolavera. In fact, if you don't know what happened with Basil D'Oliveira, you can go back a couple of seasons, and we did an entire season dedicated to him and his incredible story. Weirdly enough, when South Africa left the Commonwealth in 1961, South Africa's test status should have actually been revoked. India, Pakistan, and the West Indies tried to vote them out at that point, but the veto powers were with Australia and England, and so South Africa stayed put. In the 1960s, South Africa were an incredibly strong side. Graham and Peter Pollock, Mike Proctor, Barry Richards, Dennis Lindsay, Eddie Barlow, Trevor Goddard, Lee Irvine, Colin Bland, Tiger Lance. They were just absolutely stars. You're talking about some of the very best players in the world. Graham Pollock's batting average is ridiculous. Mike Proctor's entire record is just out of this world, and Barry Richards might have been more talented than both of them. They were so good that they won their last three series of the decade, one in England and two against Australia at home. The last of these was a 4 0 sweep. Dr. Baker had led South Africa in that last series. His teammates had chaired him off the ground after the whitewash. I suppose it was definitely a whitewash when you talk about South African cricket. And that was their last major test series for a very long time. Weirdly enough, in 1971-72, the New Zealand women visited for three test matches. A British millionaire called Derek Robbins took four different teams to South Africa, and an international wanderer side came there in 1976. But in 1977, the Glen Eagles Agreement put the official stamp on the taboo. Tennis players, golfers, and rugby teams still to it, but cricket was more of a Commonwealth sport than any of those, and there was no chance of any official cricket happening in South Africa. The ICC did actually send a fact-finding group down there. They actually liked what they saw, and they tried to give a green light to cricket resuming there. But India-Pakistan-West Indies bloc opposed it vehemently. They challenged the authenticity of what the fact-finders had seen. This, of course, made Dr. Bucker even more desperate. But he had money. And he had seen what Kerry Packer had done. Don't worry, there'll be a Kerry Packer episode soon enough. (laughs) So he knew that international cricketers had short careers and that if he could pay the right amount, there would be some who would forego their international pride. But the challenge was going to be far bigger than Packers. This was not merely about taking a stance against a board reluctant to pay. Every cricketer was going to bear the stigma that could potentially last a lifetime. The West Indies were the best team in the world, but also the most difficult target. Gary Sobers had once been made to apologize for a tour to Rhodesia in order to get a Guyana visa. And that same Guyanese government had revoked England cricketer Robin Jackman's visa in 1980-81. Jackman's wife was South African and he used to spend his winters there. A South African rugby union side had toured New Zealand in 1981. In response, the West Indies boycotted the next year's Women's World Cup in New Zealand. So Dr. Parker began cautiously with the English cricketers. Some of them had played cricket in South Africa, like Jackman, and a lot of the others had coached. On the tour where Jackman's visa was revoked, two South Africans called Peter Cook and Martin Locke had approached Ian Botham, Jeff Boycott, Graeme Gooch, David Gower, Graeme Dilley, and John Embry, and some quiet discussions took place. After the summer of 1981, there were rumours that selected John Edridge would be organising a tour of South Africa with England cricketers. The TCCB immediately warned their players against it, and that tour never happened. But Dr. Bucker's men continued to approach English cricketers directly. They quietly acquired Mike Gatting, Alan Knott, and Bob Willis. England would be touring India in the winter, but the idea was to get them over there before the 1982 English summer. But a problem arose before that Indian tour. The England squad had Boycott and Jeff Cook, both of whom had visited South Africa before. The Indian Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi, opposed England's tour of India. In fact, England would only go on to tour after diplomatic intervention, and only when both cricketers announced their anti-apartheid stance. While all this happened, Dr. Barker's plan seemed to backfire when Botham and Gower both pulled out, and Boycott returned home after the fourth test in India. The others were in, but there was no major star. England toured Sri Lanka next. Some deals were struck there. Graham Gooch came on board, not Boycott, Derek Underwood, Mike Hendrick, Chris Old, John Embry, they eventually got themselves up to 12 cricketers. Yet outside the cricketers themselves, virtually no one knew what was going on. No contract had been signed. The cricketers were supposed to meet Cook and Locke at Heathrow on their way back on February 24th, 1982. But the TCCB officials had to come and meet the cricketers, so Cook and Locke had to hide behind pillars. They visited the cricketers individually and then got the contract signed. By March the 2nd, 12 English cricketers had arrived in South Africa, and they were being paid amounts between £40,000 and £60,000 per player. Of course, at this point, the news broke, back in England. The impact was much more than was anticipated. The cricketers came in for severe criticism. The matter was even raised in Parliament. The South Africans were unperturbed by all this. They quietly signed Jeff Humpage, Bob Warmer, and Arnie Sidebottom. Dr. Bucker's dream bore fruit at last, but the English side was officially called the South African Breweries England 11, but in South Africa, they were promoted as an England side. To hype up the series, the South Africans were given bona fide test caps, and the matches were called tests, even if they weren't officially. The England team was weak, so the series was one-sided, and once the cricketers returned home, they were slapped with a three-year ban. However, for Dr. Bucker, he now had a template, so he set out to invite more teams. The next target was Sri Lanka, the newest test-playing nation. They were expected to be even less competitive than England, but it wouldn't just be about the cricket. It was also a little bit political, because the Sri Lankans were not white. Getting them over would enhance South Africa's image. Dr. Baka sent a lawyer called Colin Rushmere to sign the locals. Rushmere failed to get Roy Dias and Dilip Mendes, but he got Sri Lankan captain Bandula Wanapura. And he also managed to convince a fairly big name youngster who wasn't particularly well known at the time, Ajuna Ranatunga. But it was Wanapura who actually talked him out of it. He said this would not be a good idea. Remember, it wasn't that long before that the Sri Lankan government had banned their team from playing against Israel. So, you can imagine what was going to happen to the Sri Lankan players. In fact, it did happen. The entire touring party got a life ban, way more than would happen in England. Weirdly enough, in South Africa, they had seen whites play whites in cricket and non whites play non whites in cricket, but no one had said one against the other. Alas, this was a very poor Sri Lankan side and a very strong South African side, so the matches were incredibly one sided and the response was lukewarm. Dr. Bucker realised he needed to get a stronger team over, so he now set his eyes on the biggest catch of them all, the West Indians, the undisputed kings of cricket in the early 1980s. The Caribbean governments were as strongly opposed to apartheid as anyone was. But Dr. Bucker counted on two things. The competition in the West Indies cricket was so intense that some of their best players just couldn't get in the side, and their futures were uncertain. And to make it even worse, unless you were playing a high level of counter cricket, you weren't getting paid that much at all. So players of the level of Colin Croft and Sylvester Clark would have walked into most sides in the world, but they weren't in the first team 11. Alvin Kalacharan, Lawrence Rowe, Collis King, David Murray had all fallen out contention. These are proper players. Franklin Stevenson, who would go on to revolutionize cricket by channeling the slow ball. Ezra Mosley, really talented players who Dr. Bucker could just pick them up. But he didn't actually go with them first. The first check he offered was to Viv Richards, and it was well over US dollars There are even reports that say it was a blank check. Dr. Bucker knew that Richards was the key. He would inspire the others to join. Richards did not even consider the offer. Michael Holding felt aghast at the whole situation. When he got to know that his teammates would be playing in South Africa, he wrote, If they were offered enough money, they would probably agree to wear chains. They would do anything for money but when the big stars did say no, Dr. Bucker turned to these fringe players. He obviously did not get a visa to visit any of the West Indian countries, so he got the former Barbadian fast bowler Gregory Armstrong to approach Lawrence Rowe. At this point, Rowe probably had some hope of making a comeback, but he was also the captain of Jamaica and he turned down the offer. Now Dr. Bucker called Rowe directly to tell him that he wanted him as captain of the squad. To win him over, he offered Rowe and the other test cricketers $120,000. Anyone that wasn't a Test cricketer would get $100,000 US dollars. I cannot explain how much money this was. If you were playing in a lot of international games for the West Indies, you might make a few thousand dollars. If you played in the Packer tour, you might make $20,000. We we're talking five times the sort of money that Packer was playing. It was an extraordinary amount of money for what was second-tier West Indian players. Lawrence Rowe agreed, and others followed the evacuation took place in secret. On January 6, 1983, Alan Ray, the president of the West Indies Cricket Board, praised Roe and Croft for turning down their offer. On the 11th of January, they flew to Miami and took a flight to Johannesburg from there. Roe later confessed that apart from the money, he also did want to break the social barriers in South Africa, just like Arthur Ashe had done in 1973. And it should also be pointed out that a lot of the West Indian players knew the word apartheid but didn't really understand the social context of it. These were not politicians. They were not political students. There were some players who definitely knew they shouldn't have been going. There were other players who didn't even think about it in that way. Unfortunately, if that was Rose's intention, nothing like that happened. In fact, a conductor asked Croft to get off the Whites-only carriage in a local train in Cape Town. A white traveller called Raymond Roos protested, but Croft had to move. Three days later, the news made it to local media. Dr. Bucker's efforts to build the South African image became undone almost straight away. But the cricket, it was superb. The West Indians became a huge hit. For the first time in their history, local South Africans saw non-white cricketers of this quality. There was some concern around one of the matches, the third 50-over game, because it was in Pretoria, a city that was kind of notorious for apartheid. Instead, Berea Park attracted a record crowd. Dr. Barker couldn't hold back the tears of joy. If you've won over Pretoria, you've made it. The West Indians toured twice in consecutive seasons. They won six and lost six of their 50 over matches and won the three unofficial test matches and lost two of them. After the first season, they negotiated a 15% bonus and got that amount. But back home, they were banned. That was lifted in 1989, but their reputations never came back. Many of them were ostracized. Some left the country. Some found it difficult to ever find employment again. And a lot of them ended up destitute. In South Africa, life just moved on. Dr. Bucker now went for the Australians in two consecutive seasons. Kim Hughes led the sign. There was John Dyson, Terry Alderman, Rodney Hogg, and Graham Yellow. Then in 1989, the ICC declared the involvement with South African cricket in any way would lead to a ban of three to five years. At the same time, after the violent 1970s and most of the 80s, things were actually looking up for South Africa. The new South African president, F.W. de Klerk, announced a series of reforms and he lifted the ban on political protests. Inviting an England team in the summer of 1989 1990 was definitely a blunder on Dr. Bucker's part. Mike Gatting's men were panned by the entire English cricket fraternity. The Daily Mail accused them of taking blood money. The Daily Mirror compared them to Judas. <laughs> Just think about this, the entire English cricket fraternity is incredibly conservative. The Daily Mail is about as conservative as you can get, and even they were anti these players. The England players were met with violent demonstrations throughout their tour of South Africa. When Gatting met a group of anti-tour leaders, one of them removed his shorts to show buckshot wounds from police action. The incidents worried Gatting, but he insisted on continuing to play. So the protesters hit Gatting where it hurt him the most. They refused to cook for him. Weirdly enough, amidst the protest, Nelson Mandela was released from prison the day after the first unofficial test. The second match was actually cancelled after an explosion near Newlands. There was no question of another rebel tour after this, but Dr. Bucker was probably not keen either. The demonstrations had made it amply clear how unhappy the non-white population had been about these rebel matches. But Dr. Bucker and South African Cricket and South Africa The Nation emerged from their cocoon. De Klerk and Mandela's collaboration turned things around swiftly, and in 1991, the International Olympic Committee re-admitted South Africa. Dr. Baker realized that the non-white population needed to be incorporated into South African cricket for it to stay popular. He organized coaching clinics and development camps in Black Townships. With Steve Tshwete, he helped form one unified cricket board of South Africa, and that board got the ICC's full membership. South Africa made their first international tour after exile in India in 1991-92. It was Dr. Baka who managed the side. Until the 2003 World Cup, he remained the supremo of South African cricket, helping them weather many storms. He was there when Hansie Kronje confessed, when Mike Dines was replaced, and when Kevin Peterson left. But while he was there, he kept trying, although obviously not enough, to get more and more non-white cricketers into South African teams. It's kind of an amazing story when you think about it. In paying so many of these players, he's ruined a lot of players' lives around the world, especially the non-white players from West Indies and Sri Lanka. He had the chance in South Africa to actually try and get more non-white players involved. But of course, because of apartheid, probably felt that wasn't best. But it's incredible to think that this person that got so many players banned, suspended, or at the very worst, bad publicity back in their own countries— because of them breaking the embargo over apartheid, would go on to actually lead South Africa after that point. And things changed so much for Ali Baka after this, that when he got more and more non-white players into the side, the man who once played for and acted on behalf of a racist cricket board and was actually helping in propaganda for a racist country, would later be accused of racism himself by white cricket people for actually pushing non-white players into the side. Dr. Ali Baka is a confusing figure in cricket. But of one thing, there is absolutely no doubt. He used a lot of money to buy a lot of cricketers in the world. And that is why he's in our series. Double Century is a podcast on the 99.94 network. You can download our app via the show notes or look for us on social media to see all the podcasts and audio we produce. If you prefer your podcast ad-free, You can support us on Patreon to get that version. You can find the link in the show notes. Double Century on 99.94 is a podcast narrated, produced, and co written by me, Jared Kimber. Abhishek Mukherjee is the main writer, and Nick McCorriston edits, mixes, and co produces the show. Sports Social Podcast Network.